We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host, Brittany Eklund. Today we have another triple feature where we talk to three more student researchers, including me, Dylan. First, Lainey Beaver talks with us about course-based research, child and youth care, and the importance of authenticity. Next, we sit down with Carolina Odashima to talk about design and typography as we touch on all four projects she presented this past year. Lastly, our very own Dylan Cave is interviewed on his research on immersive audio-visual research and using modern technology to elevate a traditionally developed ballet, bringing the art form to a new standard. Lainey Beaver is in her last semester of her Bachelor of Child and Youth Care at McEwen and will graduate this spring. Growing up as a 60s scooper, Lainey, a mother of two, is driven by a desire to help children, youth, and families. Her research on authenticity aims to add to the professional toolbox of child and youth care workers, helping them achieve true relational value with others. This research was supervised by Dr. Gerard Belfi, a professor of child and youth care with an extensive record of scholarship and over 20 years of experience in the human services sector. Uh, he could not join us here today, but Lainey, thank you so much for being here. Um, Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your upcoming yes. graduation. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. <laughs> so exciting. After being here for so so much time, it's finally just, you know, getting that closure finally is, mm -hmm. is I know all about yeah, absolutely. being excited for that. It's hard not to get a little bit emotional about it. You, yeah. Well, you spend so much time in the same place, right? Like yeah. you, it kind of becomes like a second home mm -hmm. in some some aspects for how much we have to be here and be present. And, and being in that place of being stagnant can be really hard when you're wanting to move on and you feel like you're evolving, but mm -hmm. you're kind of just stuck. So it feels good to be able to move on to a new chapter. And in the spring too, what a symbolic time Absolutely. to graduate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, can you walk us through your project? Absolutely. Okay, so um, so first off, this is based on authenticity in child and youth care and the uh, importance on child and youth care practitioners, you know, being their most authentic self. Uh, so initially, the research question that we had is, has your experience within the CYC program enhanced your sense for being, being a more authentic person? person. And then as we, as I was collecting the data, there was uh, four specific outcomes that uh, did come from that. And given that we were in the era of uh, the pandemic and COVID-19, um, I did have to be uh, very careful with how I did my interviewing. So yeah. I did do some of it through email and then some of it through Zoom um, interviewing. And uh, so, uh, okay, so do we want to just dive right into the results? Well, yeah, or? I think first and foremost, um, what does authenticity mean in this context? And what, what made you want to look at this particular aspect? 
Sure. Okay. So first off, when you think about authenticity um, and being in the field as a child and youth care practitioner, um, so first off, you have to think about your, you know, who you're working with, right? So you're working with children, youth, and families. Um, often, most of them, not all of them, but most of them will be working with child and family services. They will come from a background of trauma, um, abuse, um, neglect, etc. So there's a lack of trust that comes with the with these situations and being your most authentic self is critical when working in the field and when working with with people that are coming from these types of backgrounds right um, you often are in settings where you're in group care or you're in youth um, centers or you're working in uh, like YYC or you know you'll be in the schools working with children and youth that um, are having behavioral um, um, learning uh, difficulties, learning disabilities, what have you. And, you know, um, a lot of children and youth, when they're, when they have this type of background, they express themselves through anger. Um, they may shut themselves off. Um, so it's really important to be your most authentic self. A lot of people um, in the field explain it as almost like if you are um, showing this persona where you're kind of fake and you have this smile face and you're coming to them oh how was your day and what have you it's it comes off to the child or youth like who is this person like I don't quite understand why they're here or it may come off as though they're just here for a paycheck and you know why should I open up and trust this person Right. So it's important to be able to get down to their level and um, just be your true authentic self. And there's a lot that comes with that. Um, you know, just maybe, you know, not being so smiley faced and perky all the time. It's okay to be like that. But if a child didn't get rest the night before because they're in a situation where there was a lot of screaming and yelling and arguing and what have you, and then they're expected to go through a full day, maybe on an empty stomach, um, not having any sleep, and then they are in front of a person who who probably has had the opposite, right? Yeah. Full sleep, full tummy, what have you. Um, and then, you know, you're like, oh, hey, how are you doing? You know, like, uh, can you please ex expose your whole life and world to me? That's not always, you know, the best way to come about Absolutely. with things, right? So it's just important to be very mindful and to um, just apply a lot of the skills that we learn as child and youth care practitioners meeting a child where they are at, um, you know, uh, in like using the therapeutic milieu, um, there's just, there's so much, but authenticity is one of the pillars. We have to be, um, just really our true selves and show our personality and don't be scared. And like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of the children and youth, they may be able to see right through all that fakeness. Yeah. Right. So, you know, working with children, and youth is very different from working with adults because when you work with adults, you both may not be your authentic self, but when you work with a child or a youth, they will call you out. Absolutely. <laughs> so that, uh, making us better for it. Yeah. You know, yeah I, think I think we so. all need to be a little bit more authentic to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of start to look, um, 
at the results. Mm -hmm. Did you want to walk us through the results first? Sure. So one of the things that uh, that Gerard and I wanted to focus on was um, third and fourth year child and youth care students here at McEwen. So the third years had already finished up their uh, 200 and is it 260 hours uh, per term or is it 40? Yeah. So it's 480 for the whole year of second year okay. um, in the field, right? Doing yeah. their practice or their practicum. So they're then going into the third year and they're fo focusing on their electives and their uh, core classes, right? So they have had a lot of experience already in the field and might actually be working in the field. And then the fourth years are now in an enhanced field placement um, where they may be shadowing supervisors and, you know, will probably already be working in the field for a little bit longer than the third years. So the reason why we focus on them is because they have experience in the field. And they have been able to um, go through the first two years where there's a lot of self-reflection. There's a lot of opportunity to be able to search within themselves. And it's important to note that a lot of the students are, you know, in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s. So when I had interviewed um, a lot of these students, um, it was really, really great. And Gerard and I were very impressed with how in tune they were with their selves and their authenticity and just the the amount of um self-love and self-reflection and just it's it's really impeccable to see so okay so there was four questions um that i had asked during the data collection um and number one was what do you think about authenticity Number two, do you feel that you have become more authentic based on what you have learned about yourself? Uh, number three is, can you describe your authentic self? And number four was, was there a course, content, specific time or moment in the CYC program where you connected with the authenticity and you felt comfortable with this notion? So there was six people that I had interviewed and... Um, you know, it's very important to understand that when you're talking about, you know, authenticity and something that can be so personal, um, it's critical to interview the the people um, in confidentiality. Yeah. Because they might open up and you want to make sure that they're comfortable. Right. And that could just be a skill from being a CYC practitioner. But yeah. Um, okay, so there was four outcomes. So the first outcome is true versus fake. So the participants that were interviewed expressed that, that to be authentic, they need to be true, real to, them, to themselves and to those that they work with in the field of CYC. And some said that meeting the children and youth in the space between demands for the practitioner to practice real authenticity. And if that is not honored, the children and youth will see right through that fake persona, which yeah. is what I was talking about earlier. And then the second outcome is being honest versus being dishonest. So learning about authenticity in the CYC program for one participant, it made them feel that they uh, are more honest and a whole person. They are who they are meant to be. And the participant also explains that being honest with yourself is very important to them in their practice and their personal life. 
And then the third outcome is the quality skill sets and knowledge. So in CYC, a toolkit is referred to as being a fictitious kit filled with skill sets and knowledge that helps a CYC practitioner with authentic relational practice. The research participants describe this as integrity, passion, leadership, people-orientated, strong sense of empathy, uh, calm in situations, personal values, beliefs, perspectives, uh, how you see the world, boundaries and barriers, and trust to name a few. It is imperative to obtain such attributes and skill sets to follow through with solution-focused and strength-based approaches while ensuring the children, youth, and families that the CYC practitioners work with. Great, now I lost my spot here. It's okay. We Magic can always- of editing. Yeah, are increasing perfect- our protective factors and minimizing risk uh, factors. And then the final one is self-reflection. So the average age of child and youth care students are 18 to 23. It is incredible to see how they have spoken about their personal journeys and how the CYC program has helped them to dig deep. The courses that made uh, that made the biggest impression includes such content, uh, content such as praxis theory, self-portrait, uh, the Gremlin assignment, and seminar. And one of the participants expressed that the process of learning about authenticity has come to them while they are completing their assignments. Uh, this concept in one's life is uh, it, uh, one's life is imperative when they work within a CYC aspect, and they need to know where they stand within their own self and life. And there is a saying: in order to help others, you must help or help yourself first. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I like to tell friends when they're kind of languishing that, like, you got to put the airplane mask on you before yeah. you can go and help anyone else, because you're no help to anyone if you aren't well or you're not feeling your best. So. Absolutely, and self care is a very big thing in our field. You know, whether it be uh, child and youth care, social work, really any human relations type of position. You know, it's imperative to take care of yourself first before you help others. Yeah, that's a, and it's a yeah. huge weight too when you're constantly helping people. Yeah, you know, there's a, a huge emotional weight there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you're having to to help these people with their their hardships and whatever they're dealing with, it adds uh, definitely adds to your own. Yeah, and you know it's it's just like and being a mom, right? You know, you focus so much on your kids and taking care of everything else that you know you got to take that time to you know maybe shave your legs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, So in your interviews, I'm very curious about what some of the barriers might be to um, child and healthcare practitioners, but to anyone in being authentic. Um, Why do we have to teach people to be authentic? I think there's a lot of red tape, right? There's there's a lot of policy. There's a lot of procedure. There's a, this professional manner that we all have to, you know, adhere to. And you can still do that while being authentic. But it's, it's really about being comfortable within your own skin and your own self to really, truly be authentic. And it's something that many of us will work on for many years, You know, and um, for a lot of the practitioners that are students, you know, like I said, I'm I'm very impressed by these groups of students because 
there's still so much self-reflection and identity formation and, you know, a lot of finding your own self at those stages in life, right? So to be able to just be... um, you know, so um, in a in a stage where you know, almost like they're like in their thirties or forties, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty impressive. Do you think that also? I mean, you've spoken a couple times now on how surprising it is that these younger people are so authentic. Do you think it's like a cultural thing that we're getting a little bit more in touch with our feelings now? Like, what's changed? <laughs> I think it might have a lot to do with the program. You know, the professors, um, you know, the coursework, um, the opportunity to work in the field um, right from um, year one and then year two, you get a little break in year three, but you're usually often working. And then year four, there's just so much practical experience and the the agencies that we're working with, you know, they give us really great opportunities to work with the children and youth. And, you know, um, when you're working with children and youth that are coming from these types of histories, you know, they don't have a lot of trust. And so when, when you're, when you, when you as a practitioner are working with them, you know, you really have to you know, look within yourself and be like, you know, why am I really here? Why am I passionate about helping these children and youth? And if if this isn't the place for you, by the time you get to your second year and you get your diploma, well, you know, you don't see a lot of those students continuing on. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's 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 kind of comes from all aspects and, yeah. you know, very holistic, which I think child and youth care yeah. Is you have to approach things from every angle, really. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, I heard that child and youth care, us being a research podcast, child and youth care is one of the only programs at McEwen to offer course-based research. Yes, from what I understand, um, it is, and it would be so important for all of the programs across the, you know, in McEwen, U of A, all of the places, to have, you know, give the chance to the students to be able to work with their professors. Dr. Belfi, he, um, you know, has extensive experience in research and he had to ask McEwen um, and get permission to be able to, um, you know, take the students under his wing and do research. And some of the students do actually get published. And that's a, a really big opportunity, you know, for an undergrad student to be able to be published published is a really big deal and can set them off for their master's, you know, education, what have you, or just being out in the field, right? Yeah, it's a great credential. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's imperative for all programs across the board to be able to give their students that opportunity because, you know, often we'll go into our master's or our PhD and being able to have that chance as an undergrad, you know, you get to experience it and you'll have kind of already like an inkling of what research is and what the whole process is. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to get our uh, student credentials as student researchers. So we actually have to go onto a website and do studying and like actually obtain a a a certificate um, in order to potentially be published, right? So it is a risk that Dr. Belfi is taking, but it's also like... 
it really pays off and it sets the students up for a whole new experience. Yeah, like from your own experience participating in this course-based research, like how beyond the credential, how did it complement your your experience as a student? Well, you know, I... I come from a, a background where I have, you know, grown up in care. I'm a 60 scooper. And, you know, I've had my share of child and youth care practitioners and social workers that have not been very authentic. And, you know, often they'll say to me, you know, oh, well, you have a good head on your shoulders and you're going to make it one day and I don't really have to work with you. And you're kind of standing there as a kid like, well, you know, I'd still like to get some love and attention. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And, you know, so I've seen a lot of, you know, um, I've had negative experiences, but I've also had some really positive experiences. And one of the ones that I really connected with, she's a social worker and she's actually going to be at my graduation this spring. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I guess moving forward a little bit, um, I think I'd like to finish off with just saying that authenticity is critical in our field, but there's not a lot of research on it. So I would just encourage, you know, those students that have those opportunities to really look into it and, you know, let's all work together and try to get some published pieces out there because authenticity is critical. And, you know, if there's more information out there, the high school students can, you know, do their research papers and, you know, university students will have information that they can look up at and you know and you know who knows maybe one day there'll be an actual course on authenticity wouldn't that be great do you have any advice for people on how they can be more authentic and bring their most authentic selves to whatever they do well, you know, the pandemic has put us in a situation where we really have had to look within and we really have had to self-reflect. And, you know, I think that that alone has probably brought a lot of people to a point where they're being more of their authentic selves. And, you know, it's there with it comes a lot of fear. It can be scary to self-reflect and look within. Um, but, you know, as a mature student, you know, I find that I I am at a situation where I'm able to look within a lot more than, you know, maybe 20 years ago, right? So it also probably comes with age, but, you know, don't, don't fear authenticity. And if you really want to bring it out a little bit sooner, go out in the community and work with the children and youth because they'll bring it out. Yeah. <laughs> so Lainey, now, yes. now that you're about to graduate, what's next for Lainey Beaver? Well, let's see. Um, I actually was, uh, I just completed my fourth year practicum with the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights, and I was offered a contract. No Congratulations. Yeah. So I'm going to be working with them for three months until we can uh, find some funding or see what happens from here on out. Um, yesterday, I actually found out about a potential scholarship that might be in my future and maybe bring me back to McEwen and or to Montreal and potentially to McGill University hey. so that would be fun uh, so we'll see you know uh, sky's the limit there's a lot of opportunity and I'm just excited to keep it moving and you know and, and see what else comes well absolutely sure. congratulations on all of that thank um, you. hard work pays off yes it does so thank you so much for coming and presenting your research with us today thank you for having me yeah it was great great having this chat 
Carolina Chiemi Odishima is a third-year design student at McEwen University. She is an international student from Brazil and a Bachelor of Visual Arts and a Bachelor of Education. She's always been attracted to problem-solving, streamlining processes, and making things aesthetically pleasing. So it just made sense to her to also pursue design. Her current interests are in branding, user-centered design and illustration, and Carolina presented four projects at this past year's Student Research Day. So we have a lot to talk about, and I'd love to dive right in. Carolina, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, can you tell us all about uh, these four projects you presented? Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. So last year, I got the chance to present four projects in the Student Research Day. Uh, there was a lot to unpack. <laughs> But that's um, a ton to unpack. I did one project and I was like <laughs> overwhelmed. So I'm sure that was a yeah. lot. <laughs> but honestly, and I'm going to say that uh, right off the bat um, for any design student that might be hearing, um, you already done all the heavy lifting. So like presenting at the student research day is just a step ahead. So, yeah, in the end, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, so in the end, yeah, for our project, so. Three of them belong to the same class. They were developed for my typography two class with Constanza Potcher. Um, one of them was an album design that I designed for uh, Roya, um, represented by Bent River Records. Um, another one was a brochure made for the book of the year um, that was full uh, by Ian Raid. And the last one was actually a group project that I made with uh, everyone in my class, and it was an experimental type book. And myself and my colleague, Lena, we got the chance to um, do the, like to volunteer for uh, designing the cover and the front matter of that book. And lastly, the fourth project is a design activism project that I made for um, my design studio three class with Wayne Williams. Okay. Um so yeah, I guess tell us a little bit about each project and kind of the process because I imagine that design activism is very different than say creating an album or is it? Is it the same? I don't know. So Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. So actually for any kind of um, design project you tackle, you have to do a lot of research and the design research basically involves the same kind of methodology you can kind of adapt depending on your um, final outcome and the purpose of your design. But honestly, it is a lot of repetition. <laughs> is it a lot of uh, researching what you're doing, researching your target audience, um, getting to brainstorm, um, using modes of persuasion and figures of speech and making prototypes and then like uh, making different versions and testing your 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 prototype, so um, it is a lot of repetition, which doesn't make sense. I think uh, if you look at the final outcome, the final mm -hmm. result, right? Um, so yeah, you tailor to each project. So let me think about it. Yeah, for the typography projects, usually you have a lot of visual research. I would say um, you see what you have to do. If it's a, a brochure, you see some examples of it. If it's an album design, you also try to see some examples. Um, and basically, you tailor to what you need. Um, but yeah, like, I guess 
the the design activists goes really out of the curve uh, compared to those three projects. Just considering how you have to think about um, communication more than the visual aesthetic of your project. Yeah. So I guess before we dive into design activism, I would like to touch a little bit more on the typography. What's experimental type? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy for me. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Experimental type. <laughs> Makes total sense. Well, it doesn't make for a lot of people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so for that project, we had um, Einstein's Dreams, which is a book, right? Um, and then each student tackled one uh, of the l- little short stories we had in the book. And um, with that story, you had to kind of portray it only using type, only using fonts, uh, thinking about what that story was talking about. So you you try to follow a theme and try to convey that um, same feelings and ideas only through type, which is a little bit crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, though, because imagine, like, the difference between getting an email in, like, Arial or Times New Roman versus getting an email in Comic Sans. Yeah. Um, type does really convey. Or even going to a restaurant and reading a menu that mm-hmm. was written in, like, signature script, like something that is unreadable but it's it's the type of restaurant isn't fine dining so it's not meant to be a fancy font it's meant to be more like your you know babis new fonts yeah type things easy readable easy eats type of thing and then you get something like that <laughs> exactly type communicates a lot more than we think about right yeah so that um, project was basically exploring that uh, all the extent you can go using only one or two types. Did you like learn anything that you didn't already know during this project? Or was this more of a putting your knowledge to an application to kind of demonstrate to others? Well, I learned a lot for sure. It is a very challenging project. Uh, When you first started, you don't know what to do. You're like, what else can I do different from everybody else? Like this project has been overdone by a lot of design students across the world. And even at McEwen's like, it is uh, a project that every year is going to be done again. How can you do it differently? Um, so, yeah, it is challenging, but it, it really makes you work your brain. Like, it really makes you research in order to find, like, a different way of uh, finding a solution. Okay. Um, something else I'm interested with the typography work is for the album and, like, the album design and the brochure, were those made in conjunction with like a client? Oh yeah. So both of those those projects were um, thinking about like a final client for sure. Especially the album design because that was a, a design competition. So Roya was actually um, recording her album with Bent River Records and they needed uh, the, the jacket and the, the labels and everything else. A whole system for her album. Um, so we are we were all designing um, for the same album and trying to compete for her attention in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so each of us came up with like a very unique idea of how the, that, um, her music sounded and how her music should be portrayed and represented. Um, and the way typography comes into this project is that 
how do you also create like a very cohesive system? How do you convey uh, things in a very organized and legible way as well? Like you have lyrics, you have information that has to be uh, displayed correctly and uh, very clearly to the users. What about the experience of like working with a client? How does that interact with like you're a student, you're a student researcher, but you're also working with a client? Is that an added pressure? Um, yes, I guess for many people it is. Well, I've already worked as a designer before. So like I already had like some experience. So for me, it was like, oh, this is a protected, like safe environment. We are at the university. We are learning. It's fine. But I understand that that specific uh, project has a lot of uh, pressure on uh, for, for many students because it might be their first experience with a real person, with a real client, and the stakes might be a little high for them. Uh, but that's what's important to have that, that kind of experience in a university because that's where you learn. Uh, it's not like if you mess up, you're going to lose that job or people are going to be mad at you. No, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, it's just like another way of learning and yeah, nothing Experiential bad learning happen. is huge in our exactly. industry, in the arts and, and, and design. Like everything about it, about what we do is just so important to, to really do it practically because then, you know, even if the, the client is really awesome and nice, the pressure is still there That because this is a real thing. Um, you want to put your name on it. You want to put it out to the world in this in this thing. We deal with the same thing in music for sure. Well, design is also very like artistic. And I find that when you're in a an industry that you're putting a piece of yourself out there, whether it's your music, whether it's a design, whether it's a article that you wrote on someone, you're basically handing it over to say, judge this and tell me if it's good <laughs> enough. So, you know, if you're a people pleaser or you get a little anxious about being judged, I, that I, can be an added layer. That's yeah. the thing that I always find interesting about design and art on how the two mediums are so similar but so different where you can create a piece of artwork and put it in a gallery and sell it for X amount of dollars. And then, you know, design, a client is telling you what to, to they, they are envisioning or giving you ideas and what to, what to create for them. So you have to be very well versed in not just one style of art form that, you know, not everybody can be the, the Picasso in their own lane, like they did one thing really well. You have to kind of take all of those different design aspects. Exactly. As a designer, you have to be very adaptable. Yeah. Every time like a new challenge approaches, you have to look at it and be like, okay, how do I solve this one? Uh, what are the tools I have? Do I have to go look for something else? Do I have to prepare myself a little more? Um, but yeah, and talking about the artistic side of it, um, as a designer, you kind of have to separate it a little bit. Um, you can't take it personally. You can't take it as a, as a um, like somebody's trying to hurt you or like say mean things about your art. No, that's not uh, the purpose of it. Um, you have to be very aware that you're doing it as a job and you're trying to solve that person's problem. Um, and you're actually doing something for them. I am very excited um, to talk about your design activism. Is there anything that you want to um, just say about the three typography program? Program, sorry, <laughs> the three typography projects uh, before we move on. Well, oh yeah, just complementing something else that I was talking about. So 
uh, for uh, the brochure, we just um, had um, Ian, the the um, the author, come over to McHugh, and he was actually listening to us and like looking at the designs we made. So he wasn't an actual client, but the author um, himself came over to see our projects, and that was really nice too. Like so, it also added a little bit of pressure. Com coming from the student side of things, when I'm walking through the hallways and I see when these things are happening, when the brochures are coming out, when the album designs are being presented, it's so awesome seeing all of the artwork uh, for all these different album designs because every single one of those album designs that I saw was phenomenal. Whether or not, like, only one can be chosen, unfortunately, unless they did, like, a multiple record run or something like that with different designs. But, you know, um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's really cool to see that all this album work is being done. So, design activism, uh, a term that I had never heard before I came across your research. So, very interesting. In the pre-interview, um, you describe it as a disruptive design concept responding to a white supremacy demonstration that happened earlier that year. So that would be last year. Um, it was an art installation that would be displayed where the rally took place as a way to call attention to that event and also protest against it. So can you expand on that for us and kind of walk us through the project, please? Oh, of course. So um, our design um, is Studio 3 project. Uh, was basically um, focused on a lot of um, communication, um, on um, uh, semiotics, and how to convey certain um, ideas to people. Um, and we were a lot focused on um, social problems, really. So, like, um, so at the beginning of this um, project, we had to divide ourselves in groups and we were like assigned, like uh, we had to choose our, our theme. And my group decided to choose for um, white supremacy. Um, and at the time, it was like very impressive to me. Like, as I said, I'm an international student. So for me, like I have this vision of Canada being a certain thing that is told abroad. So when you talk about like white supremacy in Edmonton, I was just in shock, I guess, right? And the more I, I researched on it, I was like even more like upset about it. Um, oh, yeah, we have a horrible history of it. It's yeah, it's, yeah, sickening. Yeah, it is, and yeah, it was just like a very shocking process to me, like everything that was happening um, at the time. And um, with this project, what we had to do was like um, we found like we found out that there was like a, um, this white supremacist uh, demonstration that happened um, somewhere here in Edmonton, and um, we had to propose um, a, a design piece that was almost like an activism artistic piece that was going to be installed in that in that place in order to call attention to that and try to get. Um, that idea of like to um, communicate to people uh, that that happened and what they could do about it, or maybe just like raise some ideas in their heads. Like, do you think this is right? Do you agree with this? Uh, what do you think about it, right? Um, so it was a long process of like researching, understanding what, what was it, uh, the sources. Like for me, for example, I had to see all the history of it um, and see past examples of what happened here. Um, and what what is going like how how is it moving right and um, not only that I had to go to the location take some pictures 
and just prototype, see what uh, what would be interesting for the people who circulate in that space. Uh, how could I talk to them? How could I convey uh, these ideas to them? Like, how could I try to start a dialogue, right? Um, so it's not like a project that I actually got to do it um, physically. It was in the middle of the pandemic, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had um, the chance of like making some prototypes and just um, making some concepts of how this could be. Okay. So was the work ever installed? I know you sent us a photo. Um, can you describe the picture to us and our listeners and kind of explain why that design works and why it was chosen maybe? Well, um, yeah, sure. So uh, um, I sent you a couple pictures, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, um, those were two different um, ideas that I had. One of them was just a, a project projections during the night um, where you would have like um, this, um, how do you call those? Like when you have those, when there's like a crime or something, a crime scene. Crime, you scene. Have, crime scene, yeah. yeah. So you have like those yellow tapes like protecting the space. So uh I would cover this whole building with a projection of those tapes and like this message of like a white supremacist uh, event happened here. Like just like this is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so this this is where it plays with a lot of uh, um, semiotics. So like when you see the yellow tape, immediately think danger. Um, yeah, attention, like what is going on? And when you look at it and you read the message, it's like, okay. So this is important. So this is relevant, and this is dangerous. Right? And, and another idea I had was just placing um, some uh, spray painting uh, um, on the floor, some messages like with footsteps, like and saying like a white supremacist stepped here. So like when somebody's walking and they look down, like oh, what is this? What are those footsteps in yellow? And they see the message, uh, they can uh, think about it too. Like okay, so like I'm. Uh, sharing my space with someone else that I might not agree with. What can I do about it? What do I think about it? Yeah, that was the one that jumped out to me because I think it's such a brilliant yet simple statement of you're standing in a space where someone with arguably, you know, kind of a hateful view towards the world and it's right here in our city it's right here in our downtown core so it engages people in critical thinking as you were talking about projections and stuff because projection mapping is something that i'm very interested in not that i do it a lot but um i just every night that i drive home i drive past the legislature building and now it's covered in white tarps all around the legislature and i was like this would be a prime opportunity to do some uh some anarchist projections onto (laughs) the onto the legislature building Exactly. Like you can create some very provocative designs and art, art pieces, right? Um, Just to get people thinking about stuff, right? Sometimes, uh, like, especially nowadays, everybody's calling for everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. You have ads everywhere. Uh, Even if you want to relax and look at YouTube or uh, Instagram, social media, everyone is calling your attention, is demanding your attention. So how do you capture people's attention to like an important matter, something that is actually relevant to our society, right? So you mentioned that you created these prototypes, but you were you able to actually install any of the designs? No, that wasn't possible. I don't think actually like, well... 
just to get to do like a, a project, like a, a projection on a building, I don't think I would be able to actually do it, right? Like, I don't think that specific uh, a place would be too happy about it. I don't know if they wanted to be associated I mean, that's, with that kind that, of thing, yeah, right? That's, that's, that's what activism is about, though. Yeah. Yeah, the, the whole idea was to be a little like sneaky, actually, mm -hmm. and to be a little like guerrilla kind of <laughs> <laughs> strategy. Uh, like, uh, actually, I thought about it like being like borrowing from them as well, like because in my research, I saw that they would like insert a lot of uh, uh, hateful comments everywhere. You have like bus stops with hateful comments. So you just imagine somebody who specialize and like is walking around a minority and they look at the, the, the bus stop they go every day and they see this hateful message, that's very mean. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, I'm gonna use the same kind of strategy against these people and see how it works, right? I love that, I love that reverse racism graffiti, you know, things that, that uh, there's, there's like a TikTok trend of somebody that goes around and uh, replaces spray painted uh, racism things that have been spray painted around certain cities and they'll edit them to make them into something beautiful and accepting and and like something completely opposite of what it was intended to be which sounds like design activism exactly so we have learned a whole new i mean yeah art subversive art graffiti things like that taking up space for messages that are actually counter to harmful narratives Exactly. If you yeah. need to know where to get some projectors. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make note. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what's kind of next? Do you have any plans um, for any more design activism in your future? Is this just something that got your juices flowing or? Well, I love me some design activism, honestly. But, um, well... I'm graduating right now, so like, um, probably I'm gonna find a job right now as a designer. That's what I'm hopeful for. I'm excited about and the design activism. I don't think it's very unless you're working for like an NGO or you're working for Greenpeace. Uh, I don't think you're gonna have that um, too often uh, in your clients' list. Yeah, get a, <laughs> get paid to basically just create like beautiful graffiti yeah. activists. I mean. Greenpeace probably has designers that work for them. Oh, yeah, so. for sure. They do. Yeah. Every organization has to have some some aspect of design in it. Well, yeah. And Greenpeace is, you know, pretty well branded. So exactly. A big yeah. machine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do have those designers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you are really close to graduating. Um, what kinds of like what what's next for you in research? Well, research is going to be always part of my life. As a designer, you just work with research all the time. There's no way, like, even, like, I, I hear, like, some design students talking how they don't like uh, design research, but it is an integral part of your work. Huge. You can't escape from it. You just can't. <laughs> and I love it, actually. So I know that it's going to be part of my life for now on. Like, it is something that I do all the time, like, solving problems. So you have to go and do your research. Perfect. Well, that's like all the questions that I have for you. But before we end, I just want to open up the floor and like any last thoughts you have or anything. Well, yeah. Well, like I said in the beginning, 
um, if you're a designer, if you're a student and you want to participate on the Student Research Day, you should go for it. You already did all the hard lifting. It's just about showing the world what we do in the university, how important it is what we do in the university and how important it is as professionals uh, to be good researchers and thinkers, um, people who actually are critical. Yeah, toot your own horn. Yeah, and apply for grants, too, because as a student researcher, we have some funding available specifically here at McEwen University, but there is funding uh, available elsewhere as well to help fund your research. So keep that in mind as well. When we're talking about, uh, we have um, at McEwen here, we have the USRI Student Research Grant, uh, which will allow for up to $3,000 of funding for any student researcher who gets approved. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today and walking us through all those projects. Congratulations um, on accomplishing so much and congratulations on your upcoming graduation. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here with you today. So great chatting with you, Carolina. Thanks so much. Today, the tables are turned and I'm going to be talking to our very own Dylan Cape about his other role as a researcher and his immersive audio research. Dylan Cave is graduating from the Bachelor of Jazz and Modern Contemporary Popular Music at McEwen University with a major in recording and production. He also has a diploma in drum set performance and he currently plays bass in the Humble Cartel as well as works as a studio session drummer for hire. So hire him. You may also know him from the podcast Research Recasted, where he is a host, producer, and sound engineer. Hi, Dylan. Hello. So you know the drill. Uh, let's dive right into your research. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, immersive audio and why you wanted to study it? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'll start at the beginning when the idea first was conceptualized. Um uh, a friend of mine, Philip Rota, a composer, music engineer, producer in town uh, in, here in Edmonton, um, has uh, ha- had been hired to, to do a ballet. He hired to compose music for a ballet. And he asked me one day, he's like, hey man, can you like give me some criticism on this on this music? So he sent me the music and I listened to it and it was phenomenal. It just was like this so such engaging. Uh, it took classic ballet and modernized it. And throughout the entire ballet of the two acts, the it went from classical music um, of string arrangements to like some hard EDM moments. Oh my goodness, that and, sounds very fun. Yeah, and it's really cool when, when the ba- ballet itself was reimagined from a classic ballet. So that was kind of like the... the, the what the change they were trying to make okay was was going taking a class something old making it new again yeah and changing on how you know um some of the stereotypes that old ballets portrayed um on women on gender on yeah th- a lot like of uh, damsels in distress being yeah rescued <laughs> and so uh phil invited me to the premiere of this screening of or not screening but this performance uh at skirts of fire festival of this ballet and um I went 
and it was uh, stunning. And the you know the performance was great. Um, and then they they you know they had perf- they played the the music back through a small, tiny PA system. Yeah, that was it made it less immersive. Yeah, and but the the art itself, and I was trying to imagine it in my head what it would feel like in a full production with full lighting. Like this was a tiny little festival with I think there was like thirty people in the audience, all really close together. Um, and I just kept when I was watching this, I was like, "This, this could be huge. This could be something big, uh, immersive." And um, so I got interested in it um, because I was just getting into immersive audio. And for those of you who aren't, uh, you know, familiar with immersive audio, immersive audio, you can compare it to your home theater system if you have a home theater system with multiple speakers. Um, like a 5.1 or let's say everyone mostly everyone has been privileged enough to go to the movie theaters so if you've gone to a movie theater and got like Dolby Atmos that's essentially theater version of immersive audio they're trying to make you feel like you're more engaged in the movie they're you're they're hyper accentuating things like explosions and uh, planes flying from behind you to in front of you. Yeah, like at the beginning when it's like the race car and it goes around the theater and it sounds like Doppler effect, like it's actually moving. Exactly. And so immersive audio, I work specifically with mostly binaural, which means with uh, listening with two ears. Obviously, we always listen with two ears unless, you know, you have a disability of some kind. Um, So immersive audio... Um, binaural what I mean is listening with two ears isolated so you with headphones okay. so the difference the the thing here we'll get back to the project in a second but um, with, with binaural audio is what um, listening to each ear separately and what you're able to create when each ear has its own isolated signal source coming from um, the whatever you're listening to is you can f- pr- you can fake the brain into thinking sounds are coming from different directions, yeah. and, and not just when you're listening to on speakers, you can hear things coming from the left and the right, and when they sum together in a stereo field, you can see things physically in front of you in a stereo field, but you can't see things more widely. You, they can only s- pretty much be as wide as your speakers. Yeah. So hearing things behind you, the only thing that you're going to hear behind you is late reflections off of your wall from that. Yeah. So when you isolate your isolate your ears, put headphones on, you're able to actually trick your brain into thinking um, if it's mixed in a certain way, if the if there's the right types of reverb and the like the specific software that I, I that I studied in this research project, you're able to actually position objects and they this is called object-based mixing. Mm-hmm. So when you're let's I'll keep using the analogy of movies, but I I'll translate it to music later. Um, with movies, again, we're talking about that that helicopter or that car, that race car driving around you. So the race car is the object, and it they essentially what they're going to be doing with binaural is they're going to be taking it and f- moving it from behind you and then rotating it around you. And you know, if it goes off a jump, it's going to go above you and mm-hmm. then back down below. So with binaural audio, you're actually able to position things in a three-dimensional plane above, below, behind everything like that. And that's because your um, your ears are how we hear things in real life yeah. is, and how, how we distinguish where sounds come from is the distance between your ears. So if something is coming from in front of you, it reaches both of your ears at the same time. So you can uh, see, or your you can your brain can tell your ears can you, see. Yeah, if you close your eyes, your 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 brain will tell you that this sound is coming from in front of you. 
And um, whereas when you have the headphones on, you can trick your, get tricked into thinking the sound's coming from in front of you when actually, uh, no, the headphones, it's coming from the headphones. Yeah, They're exactly. right on your ears. Um, so if something is farther away from you and to the left, it um, you're, it's arriving to one ear sooner. Okay. And so that's that's the difference of why we can't really do immersive audio to the same uh, respects live. Okay. Although we do. Yeah. And like, that's the thing is you're talking about being able to program basically the sound and the audio to be able to trick your brain or tell your brain that the sound's coming from one place or another and not just coming from speakers that are exactly. in front. So I'm very interested to hear about how you wanted to apply that to a ballet because, you know, when you go to the opera or a ballet, usually there's an orchestra and from the seats, it is all kind of coming at you from the front. So what did you want to, where did you want the sounds coming from on, in the ballet? Yeah. So the, the, the interesting part about a ballet and the orchestra being in front of you is usually at the opera or the ballet, you're in an acoustic treated space where they have made these spaces acoustically make it sound fuller and bigger, but using reverb and hard surfaces and things like that. Um, so that the sound that's coming from from in front of you on stage is actually hitting the wall and making it sound like there's things coming from behind you. Yeah. Strings and whatever. But with this ballet, since we wanted to incorporate electronic music into it and a lot uh, and uh, sound design where of of um, there's like this this moment in the ballet where there's these breaths and they're it's meant to make the audience feel uneasy. It's oh. it's kind of like a barking breath, like a <laughs> and so. And it happens repeatedly at this one spot uh, in the ballet where um, one of the main characters is hiding from the evil or the the antagonist characters. And um, the way we use that... you know the the what I was anticipating doing was we we had two options to do this ballet. Um, One was everyone in the audience had to have a pair of headphones. So we, we had to supply... X amount of headphones if we had an audience of that size. So that was a little bit harder to figure out. Um, so, or we tried to find a speaker system that we could use. And so the software that I was using can actually adapt to any type of speaker system. Okay. Um, and you can add more. So we were thinking about just adding, um, going back to the Dolby Atmos, it's called a 7.1.2 mix. So the seven number of a 7.1.2 is seven speakers at the equal plane of the listener. So you start with three speakers in front of, yeah. of, of you, one center, one left, one right, two speakers to beside you, one left, one right, like directly beside you, yeah. and then two speakers behind you. And I think that adds up to seven. Yes, that does. <laughs> so, uh, and then the point, point one is a subwoofer. So it's a, a low frequency uh, effect, which it would be in the center of the room somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, underneath the audience perhaps. And then the point two is actually two elevated speakers that are above you. Okay. And that 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 helps the mixing engineer make sounds appear that they're coming from different directions. Okay. And so we wanted to start that way with with that. It didn't end up working out that way. And we've actually we actually never got the opportunity to do this. We just mixed it in binaural on headphones and listened to it ourselves. Yeah. Was that because of um like I know this was last year, so this would have been pandemic did they end up shutting down the production 
Um, a lot of a lot of different factors came into play. I don't want to blame the production because honestly, the 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 pandemic worked in our favor, if mm. not anything, because there was all these empty spaces. There was all this unused equipment that was just sitting in storage and and things like that. And you know, it just didn't work out that way because. I'm not going to get into why okay. why it didn't work out the way Some I wanted red to. Tape. <laughs> red tape, red tape indeed. Um, but the 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 pandemic itself made cha- more challenges for the artists. Yeah. So the the dancers, um, it was hard for them could because their rehearsal space actually got shut down. Yeah. And so I'd find found us an alternative uh, rehearsal space that we could do it in, and they were actually uh, when we got back into it, they were actually rehearsing in the middle of a field. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah, outside their ballet school, um, because that's the only place that they were allowed to to do it so you know just for kind of hypothetical if you were able to say reimagine this project like could they have done a live stream like if you had headphones at home would the immersive audio programming actually work in the same way as the 7.2.1 yeah and that was the the plan so we did we did stream this oh okay Uh, but I was uh, at that point was no longer involved in the project. Oh, okay. Really, I was, but I wasn't. Um, they had decided to, you know, I had I'd gone in and filmed a whole bunch of stuff for them, and it didn't. Uh, they they were on a too tight of a timeline, mm-hmm. and they wanted to edit all the footage themselves. So I, I supplied them with all the footage, uh, but they ended up not knowing how to edit footage, which is why you never give people <laughs> your raw footage. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they ended up streaming without the the mixed audio. So oh, that's they, they they ended up streaming with the raw audio from a camera, which was just um it you know it was just the the whatever music was playing over the PA system that they were using for rehearsal. Mm. It didn't sound good. And uh, it didn't look good either For, because yeah, obviously. Um, but the idea, so it is possible. So it being binaural, binaural still only uses two channels of audio, left and right, and then it uses a specific reverb engine to m- manipulate your ears. But your audience has to be wearing headphones. Yeah, which I mean, you can't really control for that. So no. the audio that you mixed, um, were you working with the composer? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I worked extremely close with Phil. He was over at my house, uh, you know, a lot. Making him Philly cheesesteaks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't into the fe- cheesesteaks back then. Oh, uh, okay. But I was, we, we ordered pizza a few times, and uh, I, I hired... Uh, I hired Phil as my research assistant on oh, this project. Awesome. So he got paid to be able to... I, I paid him to take his um, Ableton session that he composed in, and he converted it to a Pro Tools session that we could then mix in binaural. Okay, very cool. So is there anywhere that like someone could listen to the mix, or would it not make sense without the visuals? Uh, this isn't released. Okay. Um, and I don't think it's going to be. Okay. I, I think the project really, unfortunately, did die. Uh, it might be revisited at a later time. I'm, um, I don't think I'm on like the best of terms with mm. with the with the creative team. Um, they had moved to Montreal, and so okay. they everything was just on such a tight timeline. Yeah. And nothing worked out, and it was so so disheartening. Well, then, what about you? What are your plans for immersive audio? Because it sounds like something that's really interesting, absolutely within your powerhouse. And I remember when we had Emily Labelle on, um, you guys kind of geeked out over. Because she was using some interesting immersive audio in her composure. Yeah. Composure? Composing. Composition. Composition, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, she was using tactile transducers, which were something that I wanted to incorporate. Because with binaural mixing with headphones, you do kind of lose some of the beef 
that is like you're just using headphones so you don't feel anything in your chest like a sub like when you go to like the club and like the woofers on and you're like it's hard to breathe and so some (laughs) there's points in the ballet that i wanted to make the audience feel so uneasy and feel like they were shaken and so with that with that barking sound that i was talking about we made it get start from behind you and come closer and closer and each bark was closer until it was right beside you oh my gosh and then the low frequencies of this uh sub bass synthesizer kicked in and it was like yeah and it was like so overwhelming but with just having our audience on headphones i was like how are we going to do this so we were going to put tactile transducers which are little motors that vibrate at a certain frequency they're silent you can't hear them but if you uh, attach them to your chair or to a platform that you're standing you on feel them. it vibrates at the same frequency that your music is playing in so it um, you know it's kind of like the D-box at the movie theater but the D-box I think is just a, a regular vibration I don't think it's actually to, yeah. the, to the tone of what's actually happening well on that's stage. very very interesting um, yeah so yeah do you plan on maybe doing I know you do a lot of researching and grant writing and and lots of creative projects you're a very very creative and very busy guy um (laughs) so like you and immersive audio i guess where are you going what's the plan you know i don't have a plan specifically i wanted to learn how to do it because a lot of artists right now musicians bands are actually turning to immersive audio for their live performances and it's a it's a genre that i want to get into um like i know for a fact that justin bieber is a specific example that it's their audience doesn't listen to immersive audio but their band is now mixed on immersive audio for their in-ear monitors oh cool so when when they're performing on stage they each have their own uh tablet with um their mix set up and you know uh if you're familiar with like mixing in your monitors and stuff um each artist is gonna gets gets to choose their own mix on this this ipad app but normally it's just a stereo left and right mix but now they're able to do this again above and below you thing and they're even going so far as to head tracked binaural and so what head tracked binaural is it puts a little sensor on your headphones so when you turn your head your mix turns so think about this you're performing performing on stage when you have in your monitors and it's just a stereo mix from the board yeah you're gonna get some some localized feeling on stage but soon as you turn and you're like trying to rock out with a drummer, yeah, your, yeah. your mix is still facing the other way. So you f- now feel disoriented um, and don't feel natural to what your ears would normally hear if you turned around. So what they've started doing is putting these trackers on people and then when they turn their heads, oh, I'm looking at the drummer now. Now the drum mix is like right in front of my face. I mean, that's so cool to me. I feel like in 20 years you might have movie theaters that actually the screen goes around the whole theater and you can you know hear things yeah Yeah, and as you look and i turned away from my mic but as you look to the action over there like this tracking by i mean that's very cool yeah so my my goal what i really would like to do um with this immersive is work with an artist specifically to bring their immersive mixes to life go on a tour where we can have a budget to to do these huge immersive concerts and and you know, really work at something like Alt J. If you, please look up Alt J. He's I do- love Alt J. There's there's two new concerts that that, that he's uh, that the band has done. One is from the Royal Albert Hall, um, where they've done a wave field synthesis immersive audio um, mixing, and then the other one um, they performed in a fish tank, and it was a video wall, but they had projectors shooting up onto this these screens that were in front of it. And at one point, the drummer's playing, and there's like water filling up 
and it fills up to his riser and then he goes underwater and it was just like it looked so cool i will link to alt j in the comment or not the <laughs> comments in the description um because honestly such an interesting artist and something that kind of demonstrates what we're talking about if, here. If, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but if you want to check out an artist locally that is doing immersive audio and it is like, I don't know if they're going to be touring with it in their next tour, but um, a band from Saskatchewan called Close Talker um, works, has worked with a specific software that, I, that I've that i been learning about. It's called Spat Revolution. Um, Close Talker, immersive audio, they, they did it on their last tour. They put everybody in the audience on headphones and it was it, apparently, I didn't get to go to the concert, but apparently it was really badass. Next time. Yeah. Um, the one thing I actually wanted to finish our conversation on is that um, you, again, are you apply for a lot of funding. You apply for a lot of grants, which is amazing. You're taking advantage of kind of the opportunities for funding that are out there um, as a student. So I wondered if you had any tips for grant writing for either students or I don't, even researchers. Yeah. Um, so the the thing um, about grant writing is you know what you're writing for, I suppose. You know what you're applying for. Look at the 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 stipulations of what the grant are asking for, and stick to what they want. You know, they sometimes it's very specific, and um, the last thing a grant um, adjudicator wants to see is something that's not relevant to the grant um, because then they're going to be like, well, this isn't relevant. I'm not going to approve this. Yeah. Um, but first and foremost, the biggest thing for anybody applying for a grant, I don't, doesn't matter if it's a student applying for a student grant um, or a musician applying for a big grant or a promoter applying for a big grant with Factor or whatever. Um, you have to know your project. Treat your grant writing as a business plan. You have to know what you're going to do before you do it. And even if you don't know how to do it, you have to figure out how logistically you're going to make it happen. How much money is it going to cost? You're going to have to create yourself a very detailed budget, getting quotes from whatever your research is or whatever your grant is for. You have to get specific quotes um, from industry um, companies that you are wanting to work with. Um, the biggest thing that I've noticed for grants of what these granting parties are looking for is how, why does it matter? What, who is it going to help? Like uh, grants aren't to help yourself. It may, might be for personal development and things yeah. like that. But for the most part, they want to see this money impact more than yourself. They yes. want to see it impact a greater group of people. So for instance, my USRI grant that I was able to get None of the money actually went to me. I was able to purchase some software with it, but then it went to my research assistants. So I was able to hire two research assistants um, and all the money pretty much went to them and I just made them work. You know, yeah. I, I just like put them straight to work, made them earn, th earn that money and then it, the rest was literally just to um, fund the rest of the project all to right. make things happen. So stay focused, think of the greater good and know what you're going to do. Know what you're going to do and, and be passionate about it. Yeah. Show show the grant writers that you're super passionate about what you want to do. Okay. Well, that's everything that I had for you today, Dylan. Thank you for being a guest. This is uh this has been swell. Thank you so much, yeah. Brittany. Well, school is out for summer kids, and that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. 
If you're looking for some extracurricular activity, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platform to catch up on all 22 episodes. Also, keep your eyes peeled for new content over the summer. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McCune University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Raymond Bree.